Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Xerox machine was born as a corporate workhorse made for generating stacks of identical reports for someone in management. But it doesn't take long for artists to glimpse the hidden possibilities of any technology. And as with artificial intelligence now, Bay Area artists began to take copiers and start creating an artistic movement. Chicano copy artists set up shop in the Mission, feminist ones in a bookstore in Oakland. A new exhibit, Positively Charged, at the Center for the Book in the San Francisco Public Library, pulls these works together and their descendants like the zine. We talk tech, art, and smushing your face on the bed of the Xerox. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There was a time before the copy machine. Sure, there were mimeographs and ditto machines, but that wasn't quite the same as the copier as it rounded into technological form in the 1960s and 70s. And though it's difficult to imagine the copy machine as a high-technology output of the military-industrial complex, that's pretty much what it was, not unlike the computer. And like computers, artists seized copy machines and put them to their own ends. This morning, we're joined by the curators of a new exhibit up at the Center for the Book, so that's over in Portrayal Hill in San Francisco, as well as at the main branch of the San Francisco Public Library. The exhibit, Positively Charged, tells the story of the artists who built a thriving artistic community around the use and manipulation of the copier. We are joined here by Maimina Farhat, who's a writer, editor, and co-curator of Positively Charged. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. And we've also got Jenny Hinchcliffe, who's the other co-curator of the show and is the exhibitions and events manager at the San Francisco Center for the Book. Welcome, Jenny. Hi. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, Jenny, let's start with you. I mean, what is copier art? (laughs) Uh, I would say that it is a very, you know, broad category of of work that was popular became really popular in the 70s 80s and 90s here in the San Francisco Bay Area and so copier art is in you know our definition of the show copier art is is any sort of print or broadside or artist book artist ephemera that artists created using a color copier or black and white xerox machine hmm and mamina how did you decide what was outside of copier art, right? Like, is it really anything that anyone, you know, could have hit the start button and watched, you know, um, duplicates come out of a machine? Or was there some limiting factor and you were like, no, this is the copier art and that is not? I think for us, it was a matter of looking at experimentation. 
mm-hmm. and the t- degree to which um, people, specifically artists or or um, those that were attached to c- like a community center or an art school, really tried to um, manipulate the medium as as much as they possibly could. It was all kind of new and shiny and exciting, um, beginning in the the 1960s, and then um, as Jenny said, really kind of bursting onto the scene in the 1970s. Um, so we were really interested in in trying to find as many kind of links among all the different um, artists in the Bay Area that have been working with this medium, but then also, you know, understanding that they were part of a larger kind of movement. And I'd love to know how you two got interested in kind of exploring this particular realm of art. Like, I, I was wondering, uh, Maimina, if you had gotten in, gone in through an artist named uh, Mine Akubo, um, who mm-hmm. I noticed that you had written a lot about her, a really fascinating Japanese-American artist who was incarcerated uh, during World War II. Is that kind of what brought you into this realm? Um, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I've been able to um, go through a few of the um, archives that contain some of her letters, um, some of the prints, the copier prints that she would um, make in mass and and send out to friends across the country. She kind of became um, a default correspondence artist while incarcerated at the um, Topaz concentration camp during World War II. She kept in touch with a lot of her friends. Um, for example, the founder of uh, SF MoMA, Grace McCann Morley, the photographer, Dorothea Lang. She was constantly writing to people. Um, so once she resettled in New York and had been released from the concentration camp, she really kind of maintained um, that kind of long list of of people that she was corresponding with. And one of the things that she did was she wanted to share her work. So she used a copier machine or um, even before that earlier technology um, to re- uh, to reproduce these prints and then send them off in the mail. So interesting. And Jenny Hinchcliffe, how did you get into uh, art made on copy machines? Um, I've had a long time love and sort of passion for the correspondence art community here in San Francisco and and nationally. And so, you know, Mamana and I were talking initially about what kind of show we would like to put together. And it seemed like a very natural fit that we would (laughs) come around to the copier, to color copier art, because it was such an active presence across so many communities and art you know, so many people had art practices involving the color copier in San Francisco and the Bay Area. So, you know, I sort of knew about the copier scene, but it became really solidified once Maimon and I started talking about, you know, how exciting the machine itself was, and especially the experimentation, as she mentioned a little earlier. So, yeah. We're talking about how the humble copier launched a Bay Area art movement. We're joined by Maimena Farhat, who's a writer, editor, and co-curator of Positively Charged Copier Art in the Bay Area since the 1960s, and her co-curator, Jenny Hinchcliffe, who's also exhibitions and events manager at the SF Center for the Book. We want to hear from you as well. Have you ever made art on a copy machine? And I don't mean sitting on one. Something beyond that. Something slightly more experimental than that. Or have you ever subverted your office equipment for your art. Don't worry. You'll tell all of us, but we won't tell on you. The number here is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. You know, Jenny, 
it seems like the Bay Area was a hotbed for this kind of art. Was it just kind of the proximity to Silicon Valley? You know, we had Xerox Park, uh, which was you know a very significant part of you know the history of computing. Mm-hmm. Was it just that we kind of had better and faster access to the products of the military industrial complex? <laughs> I, you know, that that may be part of it, but I also feel that there is a there's a spirit of innovation and experimentation that has always been present here and has always been relevant. And so, you know, in our research for the show, one of the things that Maimon and I discovered was that, you know, companies like the Xerox Corporation and Canon were actually reaching out to artists on both coasts and, Mm. you know, talking to them about different ways in which they might possibly use this new technology, this new machine that they were developing. And so initially there was this real push to partner with artists, um, you know, in order to help the companies build these machines in really interesting ways so that they could be used for more artistic practices. Um, But because the Bay Area has always had this, you know, spirit of experimentation, I feel like artists really adopted the color copier and the technology it represented really early on. And so, you know, you see that with communities and spaces and places coming together, places like Galleria de la Raza, Postcard Palace, San Francisco Art Institute. Um, You know, they really had these early gathering spaces where a single copier lived and people could go and use that copier. Maimon, you know, one of the fascinating things about this art, I I went to the show, I went to both the Center for the Book and the one at SFPL, and you can see that, you know, the purpose of the copier machine is to make an exact copy. But for a lot of the artists in this show, it's clear that they're trying to kind of subvert that, you know, the identicality. Is that a word? Maybe. Uh, In the art world, perhaps. Um, uh, Talk to me a little bit about how people played with these machines to create uh, new effects. Um, So at... um San Francisco Center for the Book, you'll see a couple of examples by Jay DeFeo. And the interesting thing about Jay's uh, experimentation with with the copier machine was that um, she initially went from painting to photography because her students at SFAI turned um, her onto the medium. And it just so happened that at SFAI, the copier machine was in the photography lab, not the printmaking department, which I like to note because mm-hmm. it's really interesting the different kind of definitions of the medium that people adopted. Um, so with her, she's really using it in in the same in the same kind of way that she um, would use photography. Um, so there's a, a curator, Dana Miller from the Whitney. She talks about how DeFeo actually used the copier machine um, to create studies um, for photographs and drawings that she was creating. And DeFeo herself referred to the copier um, art that she would make as imperfect clones. That's so interesting. Um, Jenny Hinchcliffe, what kind of themes emerged from these copier artists? Obviously, they all had their own independent practices, their, the, the things that they wanted to explore. But was, were there things that they held in common? Mm, I would say definitely. And you can really see that when you know you visit the show. A lot of the work is very political in nature. So it's very much of its time. Um, Reagan era politics, uh, things about the Vietnam War and specific wars that were going on globally at the time. Um, There's also this really interesting spirit of, you know, whimsicality and innovation, I think. And I think part of that has to do with the color palette itself of the copier. Hmm. Um, You know, it's the palette is very bright. It's very it's almost plasticky. It's very like (laughs) enthusiastic, if you will. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, sort of like 
winks and nods and these kind of, uh, you know, tributes to pop culture that you'll see in the show um, if you, you know, stop and see the work. So I would say a lot, yeah, a lot of the work is very political. A lot of it is very whimsical. A lot of it is very topical. Um, there's a social commentary to be sure. Um, and so it's a really kind of nice snapshot moment of what people were thinking about and what they were considering mm -hmm. at the time in the Bay Area, what really inspired them, motivated mm -hmm. them. Maymena Farhat, what role did this kind of copier art play with some of the descendants which are included in the show, like the, the zines that you know I grew up with and I think lots of people uh, have enjoyed around the Bay Area? Um, I think um, you'll see a direct tie because we actually have the work of um, Renee Yanez and Yolanda Lopez, um, who were married um, briefly in the late 1970s and early 80s. Um, and their son, Rio Yanez, is actually a zine maker. And it's interesting to kind of look at Renee's work and Yolanda's work, which is very much embedded in the Chicano, the start of the Chicano art movement that evolved in the Mission District around Galeria de la Raza. Renee was a co-founder of that space. Yolanda frequently showed there. And so if you look at Rio's work, you can definitely see the influence um, of his parents. And if you look at the work of a lot of um, younger kind of Latinx artists that are that are producing scenes, you definitely see the legacy of the Chicano art movement and of Galeria de la Raza in their work. Rio Yanis, if you are out there listening to this, I love your work so, so much. I thought the, the zine was so funny, and I will always remember Rasa Si, Dr. Doom No. Um, if you want to know what that is, you have to go to the show at the Center for the Book and check out these zines and, and this art. It's pretty amazing. We're talking about how the humble copier machine launched a Bay Area art movement. We're joined by Maymena Farhat, writer, editor, and co-curator of the show Positively Charged, and Jenny Hinchcliffe, who curated it with her and who's the exhibitions and events manager at SF Center for the Book. We want to hear from you. Have you ever made art on a copy machine? Have you ever subverted your office equipment for art? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. We'll be back with more Forum right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how the copy machine launched a Bay Area art movement. We're joined by Maymena Farhat, writer, editor, and co-curator of a new exhibit on this artwork, Positively Charged Copier Art in the Bay Area since the 1960s. We've also got her co-curator, Jenny Hinchcliffe, who's the exhibitions and events manager at the SF Center for the Book. Should also mention that the exhibit itself is kind of split in two parts. Uh, SF Center for the Book has some of it, and SFPL uh, Main Branch, San Francisco Public Library Main Branch. 
We want to bring on a couple of the artists whose work uh, is featured in the show. Enrique Chagoy is a professor of art practice at Stanford, and his work is featured in this exhibit, Positively Charged. Welcome, Enrique. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me here. Enrique, I also just want to say I'm obsessed with codices. So when I saw your work, which we're going to talk about, I was uh, so excited. I took pictures of every single panel, and I've been studying them. Um, So thank you so much for that work. Uh, We're also joined by uh, Sally Wasink, an artist uh, whose work is featured in Positively Charged as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Sally. Thanks for having me. Um, Sally, I want to start out with you. What pieces of yours are in this exhibit, and um, how did you make them? Well, mostly the pieces that are in this show uh, are artist stamps, which um, if your uh, listeners aren't familiar with that, it is... uh, you know, faux postage or fake postage that a lot of artists were making during the time. Mm. And uh, I also have postcards, uh, which are near and dear to my heart. But yeah, I I made those both on color copiers. Can you describe one of the postcards, perhaps the one with the chopsticks, just so people can kind of understand, like, what what might this look like? Well, it's a, a manufactured postcard, uh, you know, that you would buy in any uh, shop, uh, that shows the Wilshire district in Los Angeles. So, uh, just a sea of small houses mm-hmm. basically. And, uh, superimposed over that is a very large pair of hands holding a piece of, uh, holding a chopstick, picking up one of those houses. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. I love it. I mean, your work in the show is, it's funny. It's interesting, you know, that you're playing with the scale of the of hands and cities. Um, was that something that came out of working with these copiers, just the fact that you could very easily clash together um, different, you know, things from totally different realms? Yeah, that's that's what I loved about the collage aspect of the work. And uh, at the time that color copiers came out, for me, that was the exciting part. I did work some a little bit on black and white copiers, but it was the color copier invention that sort of really energized me and kind of blew my mind. <laughs> ah, so fun. Um, Enrique Chagoya, can you describe the work that you have um, in the show, the main piece? Uh, yes, uh, it's uh, uh, my very first codex uh, uh, from 1992. It's called um, Tales of the Conquest. And I did it uh, for the quincentenary or the 500 years of the arrival of Christopher Columbus to the Americas. So that that year, there were a lot of events everywhere. Uh, and I have a study or read a lot about the destruction of the ancient books from Mexico, uh, particularly uh, from the destruction of the Texcoco Library, mm-hmm. which was one of the three Aztec uh, kingdoms in central Mexico, what is Mexico City today. And uh, so that that made a big influence. I wanted to make more more of those kind of ancient books on the same kind of paper indigenous people uh, were using, but uh, with the use of photocopies uh, in a perhaps more uh, elaborated way. Because what I did was transferring the photocopies into the handmade indigenous paper. So it was mm-hmm. like a mix of ancient technology with 20th century technology. So um, because this, then the narrative became more like based on the collage. Because uh, the paper is just like a pounded bark, right? It's like a treated bark that you've kind of smushed <laughs> into flatness. 
Yes, it is. It's called amate paper. It's um, from the bark, from the tree of the same name. Amate is a native tree from central Mexico. It's a relative of the fig. Mm. And uh, it was forbidden. The production was forbidden for 300 years. And it's a miracle that indigenous people uh, today, uh, in Otomi indigenous people, still make that paper. And I'm mm. lucky to be able to import the paper from them. So um, that's uh, very significant for, for a codex for me. And uh, that's why the connection between the imagery and, and the book. The original, now this is another, yet another uh, processing of the photocopy. The original of my book is at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And because it, it, it got a little complicated to borrow it <laughs> from the museum, I um, went to Magnolia Editions in Auckland. Mm-hmm. And me, and we made uh, an, an identical lookalike uh, a codex. If, if any place in the world could do something identical, is uh, Magnolia with Don Farnsworth and Ira Farnsworth, and they helped me do this uh, this book. And it went to an exhibition in Mexico City, and we donated it. It, it was a celebration, or actually, a commemoration of the 500 years of the. Collapse of Mexico City uh, mm. uh, during the conquest in that was in in the war of conquest between mm-hmm. 1519-1521. So in 2021 there was exactly 500 years, and that book was part of the exhibition. So, but the um, facsimile that we have at the the center for the book, it's. Um, it's very much the same. Even my pencil signature from 1992 looks alike. <laughs> so this is beyond the age of mechanical reproduction. It goes from very ancient uh, forms of paper making. It's a, a proto-paper. It's before paper was developed, as the Chinese did it, you know, in the first century. Uh, this is before, like the papyrus is, is kind of an ancestor of paper, all the way to the most incredible digital technology of today, the state of the art, where we could even make uh, prints uh, on the matte paper and the lines could be three-dimensional if you want to do that uh, as well. So so it's just fascinating how the, the, the jump of technologies could get together in one place. And that's even a theme in the work itself as it kind of like mashing together both these kind of um, Mesoamerican kind of glyphs and uh, traditional painting styles with, you know, Superman <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and Mickey Mouse and, you know, diving in saying this is a portal to another dimension, you know, and it's unclear <laughs> if that portal is the photocopier, whether it's the, uh, you know, Aztec works, uh, pre-conquest works or, or what. I, I, it's, you know, as someone who's watched a lot of hours of YouTube videos on the Florentine Codex and, and uh, other, other codices, it's just it's fascinating work. Um, and thank you so much uh, for it. I want to... Um, get to some things coming in from from listeners. Uh, Noel tweets, in 1990, I was working in a downtown San Francisco office, and I would use the Xerox machine to capture images of my hands, which I would use in my collage art. I still have these. I also listened to Forum while I worked. Um, I love that, and it also makes me think of this incredible San Francisco magazine, Processed World. If anyone has seen that out there, you can look it up on the Internet Archive. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you, Sally Wasink, about um, techniques 
that you may have developed. For anyone out there who might be an amateur copier artist, do you have any like tips or tricks for like how you manipulated uh, the copy machines? Uh, well, like your listener who wrote in, I did much of the same thing, Xerox in my hands. Uh, if I was, you know, the, I worked in lots of different offices downtown during this early time period and most of them did not have color copiers, but they all had black and white copiers. So yeah, we would, um, you know, lay all of our office supplies or stationary equipment on the bed of the copier when nobody was around <laughs> and uh, make copies of that and move them around or move, move the items while the uh, machine was running. So you would get a long mm. streak of something or, you know, like your listener, I Xerox my hands many, many times and used them <laughs> in collages. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I, I did my fair share of that as well. Um, let's uh, let's bring in some callers. Uh, let's bring in Diana in Richmond. Welcome. Hey, thank you so much. I'm just so honored to be on a call with Enrique Chagoya, who I've admired for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, back in the '90s. Um, I did a lot of sticker art and uh, my partner and I went into the MoMA and counted how much of the art was made by women and found that less than 25% w- uh, of the art on display was by women. And so we made stickers about that and put those in the bathroom stalls at the MoMA and dumped them down from that top uh, bridge and <laughs> on the top floor and within a few years there was um i believe it was a surrealist show that was an all female surrealist show so hopefully we had some impact um also at that time the mission was becoming the uh gentrified <laughs> to the point where it was um you know i think the slanted door was the first restaurant that had come in there that was really upscale and the whole demographic was shifting. And so I made stickers that said, you've had your dinner, now go home and put those on uh, some of the um, parking meters. And a few years later, met someone who said they had seen my stickers. And that was like one of the highest compliments I could have received that, you know, someone remembered those stickers. So Definitely kind of along the lines of Gorilla Girls and yeah. using stickers and photo- photocopiers for political uh, subversive purposes. So really appreciate the topic and can't yeah. wait to see the show. Uh, I love that. You, you're going to love it. I promise you that. Um, Maymen, I wanted to ask you about some of the organizing places where, you know, people like like Diana would have gone um, to to kind of find people who were also interested in this work and also to find a copy machine. Um, it's interesting because by the late 1970s, the color copier seemed to be everywhere. Um, so I mentioned before that Galeria de la Raza had a color copy machine. Um, that was really with the um, encouragement of Rene Yanez, who was the artistic director at the time. He really understood that having a space where the community could come in, not just artists, but members of the the larger community of the neighborhood, residents, where they could really come in and utilize um, an easy form of printmaking. 
Um, he understood that very early on because he was active in Oakland um, with a Mexican-American uh, radical art group that would host silk screening um, events at different community organizations. Um, so I think it it really was kind of this idea about what the copier could do, not just for artists and the experiments that they wanted to pursue, but really for the larger community abroad. Um, it really kind of opened the door for having an accessible type of medium. You didn't really need to um, be trained. You could really just sort of start experimenting by yourself as long as you had access to one of those machines and they were pretty readily available. So cool. We're talking about how the humble copier machine launched a Bay Area art movement, focusing in particular in this uh, show on color copies. We're joined by Maimena Farhat, writer, editor, and co-curator of the show, which is Positively Charged, copier art in the Bay Area since the 1960s, and Jenny Hinchcliffe, who's co-curator of that show and exhibitions and events manager at the SF Center for the Book. We're also lucky enough to be joined by two of the artists whose work is featured in it. Enrique Chigoy is professor of art practice at Stanford, and Sally Wasink is an artist whose work is featured in Positively charged as well. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, have you ever made art on a copy machine? Or maybe have you ever subverted your office equipment for your art? Love to hear that. Maybe you had a favorite Bay Area zine or produced one of those. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQD Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. We've got some great um, comments, which I'm going to get to here. Robin writes, uh, I am a San Francisco artist who spent many a night while working for the airlines in the 1980s, experimenting with the Xerox machines, making tons of images with all the objects I could find, including my own limbs, whirling them around, creating a wonderful sense of movement. It totally transfixed me for months. It really made the long, lonely nights whiz by waiting for the aircraft to arrive. Oh, I hope my supervisor is not listening. Bobby writes in to say, I worked at an art supply store in the late 70s, which had one of the first color Xerox machines. I started making collaged images from a postcard of the DeYoung Museum. I ended up having an exhibit at Studio 718, a gallery devoted to copier art. Um, Jenny Hinchcliffe, have you heard of that? Uh, Studio 718? I have. I'm so thrilled that your listener mentioned Studio 718 um, because they were highly, highly instrumental in the copier scene here in North Beach, in San Francisco, in the North Beach neighborhood. And they actually were a smaller space inside of a storefront known as the Postcard Palace, which some of your listeners probably know and have heard of and have a great fondness and good memories for. Uh, but seven, Studio 718 was really very, uh, you know, they really championed. It was the owners were Nora and Nizam uh, Manasheri, and they really championed copier art. And they had lost their lease in a space two doors down. And so they were friends with Barbara Wyeth, who was the owner of the Postcard Palace, for, with along with her friend Diane Best. Um, and they said, "Hey, can we set up a copier uh, in your, you know, back room, and have you know an art space and an exhibition space?" And so that's sort of how Studio Seven Eighteen came to be. But the Postcard Palace itself is a really um, important sort of gathering spot for artists of the time. Um, you know. They opened in, I believe, 1978, and uh, they specialized in selling artist postcards and postcards made by artists. And so, um, you know, 
immediately it became this real gathering spot for people both in the neighborhood but also you know as we moved into the 80s you know bands would stop by artists would stop by north beach was really happening clubs were going all night the art institute was right around the corner it was this very exciting time and the postcard palace was really at the heart of that and studio 718 was as well Sally Wessink, um, wasn't that kind of your scene? Didn't you use a copier that was over on Columbus, kind of there in North Beach? Yeah, I used the copier at Postcard Palace, which was a great place, and I miss it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, working downtown, I was a temporary worker, so I was being shifted around to a lot of different jobs. A lot of times I just had to find the little mom-and-pop stores that were close to wherever I was working, and use those. But I tried to go to Postcard Palace and use theirs whenever I could. It was a fun place. And was there a sense that, you know, this group of people was sort of like figuring out the sort of technological, artistic possibilities, that is to say, uh, of this, of these machines? Were you just trying to kind of push them to their limits? Yeah, absolutely. That, That was the best part about Postcard Palace is that you could learn so much from other artists that were you know, selling their cards there or participating in the shows that they had and that sort of thing. So, yeah. That's cool. A um, couple more uh, comments in. Um, we all collectively have a lot of memories of Kinko's. That's what I want to say. Uh, for those who don't remember Kinko's, uh, big copy chain got bought up by FedEx and it was called FedEx Kinko's for a while. And then I think they just dropped um, what is, to me, still an amazing brand. Kinko's, uh, Judd writes... Photocopiers were a big part of my art making from the 1970s in Denver through early 90s in San Francisco. I spent huge chunks of time here at Kinko's compiling and manipulating imagery. There were limits to what could be done cheaply. So once I got my first iMac printer, an Epson printer and scanner, I left photocopiers behind. Rick writes, I used to be a copier technician for copiers located in random stores throughout the San Francisco and Bay Area. I've seen many projects either left behind or jammed inside. Also, being in the music scene, I've printed hundreds of colorful band flyers to promote shows and venues. We're talking about Xeroxing, you know, your hands, copy machines of all brands, and how that office equipment launched a Bay Area art movement called Copier Art. We're joined by the curators of the a new show, Positively Charged, Jenny Hinchclip and May Mena. Farhat. We're also joined by two artists who worked with these things, Sally Wasink and Enrique Chagoya. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. The business. The business. Whoa! Oh, you copying me? Hey! You, 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 you copying me? 
<laughs> Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. That was a little uh, safe for radio snippet of T-Pain and Lil Wayne's uh, You Copying Me. We're talking about copier art here in the Bay Area. Sort of the occasion for it is a wonderful new show at the SFPL's main branch, as well as at the Center for the Book uh, in Potrero Hill. It's called Positively Charged Copier Art in the Bay Area since the 1960s. We're joined by the curators of the show, Maymena Farhat and Jenny Hinchcliffe, as well as two artists who were featured in it, Sally Wasink and Enrique Chagoya. Um, Enrique, I wanted to ask you about the copy machine at Galeria de la Raza. Um, who, who was going in there? What were they doing with this uh, copy machine? It, it was... Uh... <clears throat> One of the, the first places uh, in the Bay Area that, that I knew that had a color copy machine because most of the places were black and white everywhere. And I uh, even uh, remember a, a good friend of mine, uh, a Chicano artist, Al Garcia, used to uh, drive or or take a bus actually from Fresno, used oh, to man. make photocopy machines at the Galeria de la Raza. And then back to Fresno, used to do political posters, political flyers, or his own books. And, but Rene was very, and also Ralph Madariaga, they both were very instrumental with bringing the copy machine to the, to the Galleria, but Rene was the one who was experimenting the most. Mm. He was the first person I saw making transfers on his sketchbooks. And I'm glad you have some of his work there. Um, uh, the same with Yolanda Lopez as well, and many other artists. I think uh, Esther Hernandez also was doing some photocopies there. But before them, and before I was even familiar with Galeria de la Raza, I met one of the founders of Galeria de la Raza as well, R- Rolando Castellón. He was uh, from Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. And he was in the original group who created Galeria de la Raza in 1970, but he was already making a scene of, of poetry and announcements for exhibitions and galleries. And he will ask an artist to make a project with a scene in which, I mean, he invited, the, the artists I remember were Manuel Neri, another artist uh, was Raymond Sanders, and all of them will be attaching things to the to the scene, either stapling like labels or putting rubber stamps on top of the photocopies and then a lot of poetry everywhere so it, it was the whole the whole little uh, scene was photocopy and then stapled together and and it was very tiny like uh, maybe four inches by three or five inches by three so those are collectibles if you ever find them and also, I noticed through before Galeria de la Raza, there were a lot of artists making political flyers and posters for things in Central America, including myself. And the first time I began to use photocopies for my, uh, you know, political imagery was in this place in Oakland. It was called the Data Center, <laughs> and there there was an artist working whose name was Rini Templeton. Maybe some, uh, maybe my mana or Jenny might know about Rini Templeton, but she did all of her political imagery uh, with her drawings. She photocopied the drawings; they were all black and white, and she taught me how to photocopy a photocopy, mm-hmm. uh, to photocopy it again. <laughs> you got like really high, high contrast, so you will have no half tones, and that would be ready to print in a you know, like regular uh, print shop. Uh, so it was called the uh, uh, copy ready, camera camera copy ready uh, yeah. uh, layout. So 
And then she photocopied a lot of those and gave them away for anybody to use. Even if they didn't give her credit, there were drawings of demonstrations, drawings of things on Central America, etc. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, she she passed away many, many years ago. Just the same thing with um, uh, Rene Yanez. I'm sorry, I, I miss him. And yeah. And Yolanda Lopez, who passed away also more more recently, but anyway, when I, I went to the Galleria, uh, was uh, already happening, the, the, the very popular, and but it was not until uh, perhaps uh, the early '80s when it was r- really kicking everywhere uh, or popping everywhere. Everybody was using it. You you print a black and white designed and printed on color paper and then handed over in demonstrations. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and the Galleria was like a headquarters with a lot of yeah. that. So that, that, that brings a lot of uh, really fun memories. That's fun. Maimena, I wanted to ask you about how you see the relationship between the kind of copy art that Enrique was just talking about, these kind of political um, copy art, and sort of previous movements in the Bay Area, like, I mean, the obvious uh, one here would be Emery Douglas um, and, and the Panthers. Um, w- what do you think the relationship there is or what have you been able to, to deduce? Um, the relationship is very strong. So you had someone like Yolanda Lopez, who um, was very active in the mission um, and active at San Francisco State with different political causes. Um, and she, at some point, actually trained with Emory Douglas, um, who trained her in printmaking. And they really kind of sat down and deconstructed what you know a print could be or an image could be um, and how you could use political symbolism um, in that type of work that would really kind of reach out and make a statement, um, not only within the respective communities that they were working in, but the larger kind of um, public. And so I think that the relationship is is very, very strong there. I mean, Emery Douglas is a towering figure. And I know that um, so many different artists throughout the Bay Area have been influenced by him um, and his his sense of determination, the iconography of, of his imagery. So I think for artists like Renee Yanez and Yolanda Lopez, and even you mentioned um, Esther Hernandez, they were all really kind of looking at the type of political imagery that was coming out of these different sort of community-driven movements and really taking it all in and really understanding that visual culture was something that was extremely complicated, but also very problematic. Um, Yolanda, for example, was looking at um, Mexican and Mexican-American visual culture um, and understanding that it was produced through a gendered sort of lens. Mm. Uh, Renee was looking at um, colonial imagery and the legacy of like the Virgen de Guadalupe, which Yolanda also... Um, included as well. So I think that um, those previous art movements definitely helped them in in terms of like sharpening their eye and really thinking critically um, about visual culture more broadly. Thank you for that. Um, Let's go back to the phones. People are uh, want to talk about their processes here. Michael in San Rafael, welcome. Hi there. Hi, go ahead. Um, I I came up with a a way of using the color Xerox machine, which was a a little unusual, I believe. In 1981, I began, uh, I had this practice of making holiday cards, and I decided, I noticed that the color copier at the library would make four passes, and it would take, the light would scan four Uh times to lay down the colors. So I would make artwork that would be black and white artwork, that would be representative for each of those colors. And I was an animator, so I would p- use animation pegs and I would tape them to the color Xerox machine. And then 
the magenta pass would happen. I'd tear that thing off and put on the second. Um, <laughs> this uh, sounds athletic. Yeah. Um, and, and do that four times. And it usually required another person to help me because we had to grab one off and put another one on in between the scans that the machine would make. But it would result in a four-color, um, you know, half-tone and solids. And it, was, it could be quite beautiful and, and um, articulate with the way the, um, the images would line up. The elements of the the four passes would line up perfectly because of the animation pegs that oh. controlled that. Michael, that is so cool. That's such a fun and and interesting way of using this art, uh, th- this this technology. I love that so much. Um, let's uh, let's go right to um, Lizzie. Get another uh, art project. Lizzie in San Francisco, welcome. Hi. Welcome. Um. So my thank you. So happy to be here. So when I was 12 and 13 in the early 2000s, I read a lot of Teen Vogue and Seventeen magazine, Um, and I was obsessed with it, but also very plagued by the gender expectations. So my friend and I cut them up, and we also, like, took our own photos and went to Kinko's, photocopied them, and made a parody magazine of of the things, and then you would at seventeen called yeah, <laughs> called magazine magazine. <laughs> I love this. I love this. This Very is creative. what all teens should be doing. Um, yeah, that's so cool. Do you have any copies of it left, Lizzie? I do, and they're sort of embarrassing, but yeah. But it started my career in photography, so. Oh wow, that's so cool, Lizzie. Thank you so much for uh, for sharing that with us. Um, you know, Jenny Hinchcliffe, I thought maybe you could just reflect on you know this on, on these two projects that we just heard about. You know, this kind of balletic choreographed um, <laughs> animation, and then this kind of zini remaking of magazines into magazine magazine. Yeah, you know, I have to say I'm really enjoying <laughs> hearing from the listeners just their projects and you know what different ways in which people have been using the copier because I think it really embodies it really just personifies um you know the creativity of individuals and it really emphasizes also the fact that you know anybody could use these machines you didn't have to have a specialized skill set you could literally bring in you know like a plastic bag of knickknacks or a collage that you had done and then you could you know push a button on the machine and and you were almost collaborating with the machine in a way mm-hmm. um and so you know hearing about about the elaborate process of you know having the pegs on the machines and the you know color separations and then running those through and you know a, another individual helping you but then also these the zines and things that people would make cutting collaging you know it it um it's really inspiring to hear about all of these different projects and i also love the you know, the sort of like, oh, we were doing this on the sly, you know, maybe yeah. we, were, we were sneaking into Kinko's because our friend worked there at midnight or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, or we were doing this on our lunch break at our office building. Um, and so all of those aspects about copier culture, I think, are really incredibly wonderful. And they speak very highly to the machine and also the process. Um, and, 
yeah, it's been it's it's been great to hear about everyone's projects. Um, one listener writes in to say, in the old days, Kinko's had a photocopy key that could be easily <laughs> bypassed with my own homemade key. My band street diamonds would travel the country, making hundreds of brightly colored zines at Kinko's around the country. The zines always had instructions about how to make Kinko's keys spreading the news like a virus. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. In fact, I'm going to be doing some of the tap dancing later on the pledge drive. But for now, for more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Um, I have another uh, couple funny art projects here, interesting art projects. Uh, one listener writes in to say, mid-90s, there was a wealth of free postcards and bars and restaurants that I would gather and then later affix color copies of photos as I traveled and send them off to friends and loved ones. Fun, cheap, and personal way to correspond. And Becky writes in to say, since 1989... I've done an annual cartoon holiday mailing to family friends, which incorporates copies. I'm a graphic designer, so it's my personal year in cartoon, irreverent and political at times. I use my home copier and I draw. Um, let's go to Bonnie in San Rafael. Welcome, Bonnie. Hi there. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk about Howard Hack, who showed at a gallery where I worked in the 70s. Uh, Manuel Neri also showed at that same gallery, so that was a coincidence. Um, Joseph Chowning owned it and later had a gallery called the Joseph Chowning Chow- Gallery. But um, Howard Hack was principally uh, an artist that did silver points, which are a very old fashioned type of like etching, um, very unique, but he was a cutting edge even as he used old techniques and his prints were displayed at the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco and at the Legion and the Achenbach Foundation uh, print collection. But he used copiers uh, to reproduce all of his work and send it to people in the mail. I have 10 framed photocopies on my wall of works that he did um, and the uh, postmark and the addresses became part of the art. So he gave each of his pieces kind of a rebirth by using color photocopies of his work. And so it's a very unique cutting edge kind of thing that I thought I would um, give a shout out about Howard passed away in 2015, um, but his work is unforgettable and, and just uh political, creative, and he was um, often uh, innovative. Uh, I remember the very, very first time I ever heard of a fax machine was from Howard. From Howard. He, he yeah. heard about fax machines, and he was already thinking, how can I use this in my art? Um, yeah. So he used the technology, both old and new, and the copier was a big part of it. So I, I wanted that. to just give a shout-out. Yeah, shout-out Howard Hack. Of, yeah, and he was part of kind of the Beat Generation, yeah. a lot of work down in um, North Beach. Uh, some people may be familiar with uh, his work in North Beach. So That's he so was. Cool. Uh, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Bonnie. Appreciate that. You know, um, Enrique, I kind of thought I'd uh, toss this one to you because you are also someone who would kind of manipulate the products of the copy machine too, right? Like it wasn't just yeah. like you made copies and that was that you also would do transfers and, and wild things. Yes. 
Yes, it's a form of drawing. It's like drawing with uh, photocopies. And uh, I, I teach that. And But I learned that from my own students, too, when I used to teach at Cal State uh, Hayward. It used to be Cal State Hayward. Now it's Cal State East Bay. Uh, my students showed me how to do transfers with uh, lacquer thinner, which is like deadly. You don't <laughs> want to use lacquer thinner to do any Xerox transfer. But that was the, the at the time I, when I did it. Actually, the book that is at the center for the book is uh, was based uh, on transfers with lacquer thinner. Oh. But um, I no longer use lacquer thinner because I mean I, I have to wear a respirator, gloves, etc., and it's deadly. Today I use wintergreen oil, or you could use also um, spearmint oil or lavender oil, and then you just brush it in the back of the color photocopy or black and white photocopy, then burnish it with a teaspoon really hard, and it transfers beautiful. And on, to and, and on top of that, it's waterproof. You could paint over with uh, water-based inks, acrylics, etc. If they are transparent, you will see the photocopy image coming through or your collage. And that's what I teach in, um, in drawing classes today, as well as in uh, monotype uh, classes. Uh, so it's a uh, and, and the first place, the first artist I saw actually was uh, Robert Rosenberg. He had like photocopies on some of his uh, paintings, actually, uh, transfer somehow, probably with lacquer thinner. But I do not recommend lacquer thinner. <laughs> <That's, that's, laughs> if there's one neuron. thing you take away from this show, friends, it's I'll do kill not your use brain. That. Yes, that's <laughs> no, right. No, use uh, simple, you know, like uh, wintergreen oil yeah. uh, or, or all these. Uh, oils for aromas they are almost non-toxic at all unless you drink it <laughs> don't oh, drink it <laughs> god it's beautiful thank you so much we have been talking about copier art and how the humble copy machine launched a bay area art movement there's a wonderful new exhibit called positively charged that you can see at the san francisco center for the book and the main branch of the san francisco public library we've been joined by its two curators jenny hinchcliffe and maymena farhat and two artists in the show, Sally Wasink and Enrique Chagoya. Both beautiful, beautiful work in the show. Thanks to all of our guests and listeners for calling in. This Hour of Form is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Jennifer Ng. Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Christopher Beal. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Jericho Reininger. Susan Davis, senior producer, VP of News, is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour. A form ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.